short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Ich bin ein Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. American people, I think, is good people. They are. They have not to charge with the guilty of all the lies. Welcome back to the Cold War episode 73, Raymondo. How are you? I am good, Ray. I'm still uh, trying to look up photos of the uh, Russian Ray, Alexander Romashova, <laughs> to see what I'm missing out on. Um, <clears throat> I hope she doesn't speak English or I'm probably going to lose my job. Hey, how's the ice doing? Is it melted by now? Yeah, well and truly okay. melted. I've gone through several uh, ice packs uh, since we started this show. Oh, my God. Lots yeah. of uh, lots of hot Alexander Romashovas coming up on my little search here. I'm not sure which one is the uh, podcast. What am I doing with a bald midget uh, when I could be having a co-host... That was a sexy hot babe. Sure, uh, and yeah. second thoughts, probably not a good idea. Probably not a good idea. She's probably a spy, anyways, and you know, yeah. With my track record, probably not a good idea. Yeah. Um, you have a yeah. thing for Russian women, or uh... just yeah? Well, just just women, generally <laughs> speaking. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you better stay with me. I did have a Russian girlfriend once, uh, Russian, yeah. half Russian, half Greek. Nice. Uh, yeah, yeah. Anywho, <laughs> let's not think about those no, no, things. No, no. That'll make the ice melt faster. <laughs> um, <clears throat> well, I mentioned I finished off the last uh, episode, Ray, talking about uh, the the Leslie Groves is now running the Manhattan Project, um, even though they're not in Manhattan anymore. <laughs> He said, yeah. the first thing I'm going to do is call this the Manhattan Project. The second thing I'm going to do is move it out of Manhattan to Washington. Um, now, Oppenheimer, commie, uh, being watched by the FBI, said, look, I've got some good news and some bad news. The good news, uh, the bad news is we think it might take twice as much uranium-235 as we originally thought to build a bomb. Uh, and, and it might be ten times as much as that. We really don't know. Second, the good news is... We think it's theoretically possible to use fusion instead of fission to make nuclear bombs, and that's where I wanted to pick up. Now, fission, as we've explained, involves breaking apart the nucleus, particularly of heavy elements such as uranium or plutonium, Mm -hmm. uh, and releasing the uh, energy in the process of breaking it apart. The nuclear okay. forces that hold the nucleus together, very strong when you break them apart, there's a lot of that energy is released. Fusion, on the other hand, involves forcing the nuclei of lighter elements like hydrogen or deuterium together. 
Mm. When you force them together, again, energy is released. Now, deuterium, which is basically heavy hydrogen, is far easier to get your hands on than uranium. Now, there's still not a ton of it, though. There is one D atom in 6,500 H atoms. (laughs) But there's a lot of H. It doesn't sound yeah. like good news. Okay. Right. It's not good news. Well, it's better um, and maybe easier. <laughs> right. Deuterium accounts for approximately 0.0156% of all naturally occurring hydrogen. <sighs> While proteum, which is the other major isotope of hydrogen, accounts for more than 99.98%. But oh. there's a shit ton of hydrogen. Yeah. Basically, the entire universe is just hydrogen. Uh, we are hydrogen. As, as I remember that quote saw someone on Facebook years ago. Um, humans is what happens when hydrogen is given 13.8 billion years to evolve. Like we are that. basically sentient hydrogen is basically what mm-hmm. we are. Okay. Um, now, a fusion bomb is also a lot more powerful, though, than a fission bomb, and that is why all nuclear weapons today are fusion bombs instead of fission bombs. So they are starting to solve some of the problems as far as material, and for their pains, they're getting a more powerful, potentially more powerful bomb. That's good. Yes. Okay. And much easier to get your hands on deuterium than it is on, you know, either uranium-235 or plutonium, which you have to manufacture from U-238. Now, uh, a fusion bomb is also known as a hydrogen bomb or a thermonuclear bomb because a fusion bomb actually contains a fission bomb inside it, tiny fission bomb, which creates the heat, the thermo part, which Mm -hmm. is required to initiate the fusion reaction which is the nuclear part. So uh, if you ever wondered what the difference is between an H-bomb or a thermonuclear bomb and a a fission bomb, that's a very high-level explanation. Now, in November, there was a bit of a scare. Um, Groves found out that Compton was building a nuclear bomb underneath Stag Field in the middle of Chicago. (laughs) Apparently, this came as a surprise. Uh, and they were like, uh, hold on a second, is there anything uh, w- worth worrying about in Chicago? They said, no, no, not really. We got they this. said, oh, okay, it's only Chicago, man. We don't worry about it. Because uh, Did you get the a memo? lot of blues clubs in Chicago, jazz clubs. Yeah, don't, don't yeah but yeah, no, don't worry about that. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, they shut down the stag field for a few days. <laughs> oh when they were like, you're doing what? <laughs> um, however, Fermi said, look, you know, we're pretty sure that it's not going to set off a nuclear explosion. They're like, really? <laughs> like, this is, you're, you're the guys that are telling us, yeah, give or take a factor of 10. We could need anywhere between a couple of pounds and a gajillion pounds of uranium <laughs> to make a bomb. You're right. the guys we're supposed to trust. Are saying, yeah, it's pro- we're probably not going to blow up Chicago. Probably not. Um, I got my slide, side ruler here. Everything's going to be fine. Slide ruler. Sorry. Now, we need to talk about K in this episode, okay. Ray. Now, I'm not talking about Tommy Lee Jones's character in Men in Black, although <laughs> I do like this clip. All right, kid, here's the deal. 
At any given time, there are around 1,500 aliens on the planet, most of them right here in Manhattan. And most of them are decent enough. They're just trying to make a living. Cab drivers. Uh, not as many as you'd think. Humans, for the most part, don't have a clue. They don't want one or need one either. They're happy. They think they have a good bead on things. Well, why, why the big secret? People are smart. They can handle it. A person is smart. People are dumb, panicky, dangerous animals, and you know it. 1,500 years ago, everybody knew the Earth was the center of the universe. 500 years ago, everybody knew the Earth was flat. And 15 minutes ago, you knew that people were alone on this planet. Imagine what you'll know tomorrow. Oh, I love Tommy Lee Jones. Nice, yeah. Can't get enough. Whatever happened to Tommy Lee Jones? Last thing I yep. saw him in was No Country for Old Men, I think. Yeah, he was older than yeah. that. He's yeah. great. What a great yeah. character actor he's been. Anywho, he's one of these guys. He makes everything better. You know, yeah. Men in Black, probably not a great film really on paper. Put Tommy Lee Jones in it, all of a sudden it's a great oh. movie. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so here's the situation. Mm-hmm. Here's what I want to talk about, Kate. Remember, to get a fission reaction to happen, you had to get just the right number of neutrons to hit the right number of uranium nuclei, causing them to fission, which would give off more neutrons, which would hit more nuclei, and that's how the chain reaction is started. Now, okay. some of the neutrons are going to be lost. They might bounce off in a direction where there isn't a uranium nucleus to hit. Mm-hmm. They might get absorbed by other things going on, gas, whatever's going on inside the air, inside the, the, the reaction chamber. So right. you have to put up some kind of shielding around the chamber to make sure the neutrons bounce back into the chamber. Right. Increase increase the number mm-hmm. of them that are bouncing around. Increase your chances of hitting enough uranium nucleuses yeah. that you start a chain reaction. That's right, hooking up. <laughs> Tindering. We're basically they're trying to tinder the whole thing here. Swipe right, baby. I don't know. Which is um, <clears throat> now to quantify the number of neutrons you needed to create a chain reaction, the physicists came up with the number K. If the number of neutrons in the chamber is less than K, no chain reaction. It's just going to fizzle out. If it's exactly K, in other words, if K equals 1, you mm-hmm. get a sustainable reaction. Right. But if it's larger than K, too many neutrons hitting uranium nuclei, it could go That's super it. critical. Gotcha. That's when you have a bomb go off <laughs> in the middle of Chicago, nuclear bomb. Bye-bye jazz clubs. Got it. So it's all about K. Now, at this stage, nobody even knew if achieving K was even possible. But they were, that was their goal, was to try and achieve K. So what they did in Chicago at Stag Field, they would put the uranium in the middle of the pile, surround it with cubes of graphite. Now, the graphite's acting as a moderator, which is slowing down the neutrons and also making them bounce back in. Right. Now, the first pile that Fermi built uh, had been on the campus at Columbia back in September 1941. It comprised cans of uranium oxide surrounded by graphite bricks, and it achieved a K of 0.87, 
which Fermi was really disappointed with. No, Fermi wasn't happy with that. He said, that sucks. I suck. I'm a failure. He beat himself up. But at least was a starting point. Yeah. By July of 1942 at Stagfield, they had edged K up to 0.918. Then they got it up to 0.94. And then they stalled. What? Why? (laughs) Well, they realised that they were going to need pure graphite and pure Uh. uranium metal not uranium mm. oxide. Uranium oxide had too many impurities. So they needed pure shit. They needed the good shit, Ray. <laughs> the good shit. Yeah. They needed the good shit. Okay. I just want to let they, you know that this feels like it's a murder mystery that's building up, and I'm going to find yeah. out who did it. Yeah. Okay, anyway, you got me sucked in. Go ahead. <laughs> well, listen, there's one more thing... Uh, you don't remember what your wife was wearing that night, do you? <laughs> um, now, the problem was that uranium metal of the purity that they needed didn't exist. Oh, come on. So originally their problem was they couldn't get enough uranium. Now they can't get the good shit uranium. Doesn't exist. So they need to get it manufactured. Now, okay. they've got a whole bunch. The American government had a whole bunch of American manufacturers working on refining uranium to make pure uranium. Because remember, before this whole, hey, let's build a bomb shit, you know what uranium was being used for before that? Nothing. Right. You didn't make <laughs> shit out of uranium because it was radioactive. <laughs> Leave it where it's at. Got it. Yeah. So... They, you know, in a couple of years, they've gone from going uranium. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> Say it again. To oh, now we need to produce really, really good uranium. Huh? <laughs> the right. good shit uranium. Um. By the way, uh, just a little bit of background on uranium. It had actually been uh, known of, discovered as a natural oxide, at least back to the year 79 CE. Wow. uh, Just after the fall of the Temple at Jerusalem, Christianity is getting off the ground. Uh, It was used to add a yellow colour to ceramic glazes. Yellow glass found in old Roman vias on the Cape Posipio, Posilipo, Posilipo, I'll go with that. Cape Posilipo in uh, the Bay of Naples has about 1% uranium oxide in it. And then in the Middle Ages, pitch blend was extracted from the Habsburg silver mines in Bohemia and was used as a colouring agent in glassmaking. Um, and that's basically it. That's all they did with uranium, uh, was they, they used it to colour glass. That's all it was good for. Yeah. Um, good for absolutely nothing. Do you know why it is called uranium, by the way? Uranium. No, tell me. Well, it was discovered as an element by a German chemist called Martin Heinrich Klaproth. 
He was working wow. in a laboratory in Berlin in 1789. He was able to create this yellow compound, probably sodium diurinate, by dissolving pitch blended nitric acid and then neutralizing it with sodium hydroxide. He sure. assumed that the yellow, you know, you've done that. You've done that a hundred times. You know what I'm talking about. In the in the RV out the back, um, <laughs> he assumed that the yellow substance was the oxide of uh, unknown element, heated it with charcoal and made a black powder, which he thought was a newly discovered metal, but it was just really the oxide of uranium. Anyway, he named the newly discovered element after the planet Uranus, which was named itself after the Greek god of the sky. The planet Uranus had been discovered eight years earlier by William Herschel. So it's named after the planet. Why? No idea. It's just cool. He's like, oh, look, we've got a new planet. I'll name my new metal after that planet. Not a new metal, as it turns out. We'd known about it for a long time, but fuck it. (laughs) He sort of, yeah, still. I've already named it now. So So that's the history of uranium. Comes out of Uranus. That's (laughs) what I call my poop. Oh, I did some uranium. Came out of my anus. Anywho, back to the science of this. Um, so the uranium metal they needed didn't exist. So they, the government had a whole bunch of manufacturers in the US trying to produce this. And they're going, what do you need this for? It's only good for putting yellow colour in glass. And they're like, shut up. Don't ask any questions. Fucking commies. We're, Just we're do stained, it. Stained glass company. Yes. Yeah. We're going to make a lot of yellow glass. Um <laughs> And there's a lot of this goes on in the Manhattan Project. A lot of American manufacturers getting these contracts to do weird shit, and they can't be told what the weird shit is for. Yeah, we need you Sorry. to make this weird shit. Why? Can't tell you. Just, just, yeah. just do it. Have to lock yeah. you up. Yeah. With the commies. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't until November of 1942 that they were the scientists in Chicago were able to get enough. Ooh. of this pure uranium metal to be able to start working with it. So Don't in, forget uh, the, uh, the cigar bet. The cigar bet the president of Chicago had with another president. So who's going to win the five-cent cigar? Oh, this is over which uh, production isotope method was the if, most if successful? They, yeah, if they were going to be able to have a chain reaction by the end of 1942. I'm just trying to help with the drama. Oh, right. Yeah. I got excited there for a second. Um, I'm running out of cigars. I only got half a dozen left, and that's it. No more cigars. Giving them up. What? Too expensive. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I can see that. Too expensive. Government keeps charging me fucking hundreds of dollars for every box. Anywho. um, Yeah. So in November, Fermi starts to build the main pile in Chicago. Now, I found this interesting. Some of the physicists working on the project were pacifists, Ray. Right, yes. Um, we know Oppenheimer was a commie. Um, and and so why would a pacifist get involved in building the world's biggest fucking bomb? Um, I guess, just to keep it simple, just the, uh, the fear of the Germans getting it first? Yeah, I think that was part of it. I think also part of it was they hoped that the, just the existence of the bomb meant mm-hmm. that Wars would stop. There would be no more war once atomic uh, bombs were available. They believe that 
This was going exactly as H.G. Wells uh, predicted in The World Set Free, that the existence of atomic weapons would create peace for all time because no one would want to have one of these things dropped on it so they'd be good. Um, it's interesting. No one, no one at this stage, well, no one that I know of had... Had, had 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 forecast the idea of mutually assured destruction, right? And and maybe, well, yeah. maybe they did. Maybe they thought, well, that that's why there will be peace because even if everyone has the bomb, no one can do anything. If, if one person drops it, that'll drop it. So no one will drop it. But as we know, uh, that's not the way it it worked out. Right. I just wanted to add real quick back on the I think it was on the last episode when you were uh, talking about FDR told Bush to explore the possibilities, but not to go ahead and start making the bomb until he gave his final say. So um, from what I could gather, even by that time, FDR was thinking about not only this war, but the next war and even how all of this was going to change the political organization of the entire world. That's not to say that he was thinking about the UN by then, but he's certainly thinking about this war. Because again, I think someone with FDR's intellect is certainly capable of this, but he's thinking about what's to come after the war. And like you were saying, if I have it, I can't control other people having it, but if the United States has it, maybe we won't be attacked anymore. And that's really what he's, his, his main concern is keeping America safe. So again, he's already thinking about the future. And this is just him back in 41, giving this guy the go ahead just to do research. So again, um, you, you just got to be impressed with FDR, certainly compared with today's president. And of course, as we talked about on an earlier episode, as soon as uh, Churchill heard about the Trinity uh, uh, explosion, the oh, first God. thing he thought about yeah. is, th- you know, dropping them on the Soviets. Yeah. Um, we didn't have a pacifist intent, uh, Pooh Bear. <laughs> yeah. I just, but I, I find this whole idea that some of these scientists had that the existence of the bomb would create peace for all time. Mm. Interesting. So it obviously didn't happen, and no. we haven't had another world war since uh, 1945, but we've had lots of bad wars. Millions mm-hmm. and millions of people have died in wars. We had Korea, we had Vietnam, we've had Afghanistan and Iraq, and all the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of tiny wars, uh, tinier right. wars um, in the middle there, um, in between all of those. So why didn't the bomb produce peace in our time? I guess, I mean, how do you do it? Like, you you can't really say to the governments of the world, well, if you do like, if you do something bad, if you start a war, we'll come and drop a nuclear bomb on you, because of the immorality of that. We know it's not just the military and the the political leaders that are going to get killed. You can't target a nuclear weapon just to kill the bad guys. It's going to do what it did in Nagasaki and Hiroshima, kill hundreds and hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians. So, yeah. Well, I mean, if you have two countries, and you're right in that since World War II, we haven't had a battle. We haven't had a war of equals. You know, we've gone into the Middle East twice and, uh, and like Vietnam and that kind of stuff. But there hasn't been a war of, of, of equals. And again, but once two sides have the nuclear capability, it cancels itself out because theoretically nobody's that mad. And you're stuck with um, you're stuck with conventional warfare. So in some ways, 
it went right past deterrence and went right into canceling each other out. So I, but I think these guys were very intelligent in their way, but like Oppenheimer, very naive politically, and um, they're just being driven by the fear of what the Germans are going to do. Mm. And partly, I think, as a physicist, being driven by pure science. Can yeah, we do this? Can we do Exactly. Exactly. But I do think uh, from the reading I've been doing over the last week, a lot of them did hope that this was going to deter future wars. And in a way, it did. Um, not in the way that they hoped, but as I said, haven't had a world war since, f- fingers crossed. Now, they still didn't know, of course, that the pile would go critical. Now, one of the other things that they came up with was the idea of covering the entire pile in a huge rubber balloon. Right. So they could float it up into the air <laughs> with an old man. No, that was a that was a movie I saw with the fox. Uh, no, they wanted to cover it with a huge rubber balloon so they could pump all of the air out of it because, as I said before, gas, air... Mm-hmm absorbs neutrons, and they wanted to negate that as a factor for uh, achieving K. Now, the balloon was made by Goodyear, who, of course, weren't allowed to know why they were building a huge rubber balloon. <laughs> we need a giant balloon. Big party I want to be daughter. Yeah, I just wish I could be part of that conversation. But we're going to need a rubber balloon big enough to put over a tank. Okay. Um, what for? Can't tell you, I'm afraid. Military. <laughs> Top secret. Hush, hush. Yeah. Imagine the conversations of Goodyear. They're building... A, <laughs> are these people really a rubber balloon? That's how we're going to win the war with a big rubber balloon? What oh are we going to fill it with? Like uh, farts? A big fart balloon <laughs> that we're going to fly over Germany and release it. It's probably what I would have come up with. That would have been the level of my analysis. <laughs> Well, Hitler was very sensitive to smell, so he probably would have given up right away. Yeah, right. Yeah. Maybe they thought it was a huge condom for a giant. (laughs) Yeah. For Godzilla. Anywho, so they start building the pile. Now, the pile has graphite bricks in the center surrounded by Mm -hmm. a wooden frame. Then uranium is placed on the next layer, then more wooden frames and alternating graphite, uranium, graphite, uranium in a roughly spherical shape. Mm. Now, these guys, these physicists had to build all of this stuff by hand. You didn't go out and build an atomic (laughs) bomb kit at at your local... Glows, exactly, yeah, uh, or Bunnings in Australia. They had to build all of this shit. They had to carve the graphite into the shapes that they needed to make a roughly spherical layer. One of them, one of the physicists working this said, we found out how coal miners feel. After eight hours of machining graphite, we looked as if we were made up for a minstrel show. One shower... (laughs) <laughs> yes, you can. It's 1942, bitch. All right. Yeah, All right. The president had nigger John go get his brandy, and these guys were making, <laughs> looking like they made up for a minstrel show. It's okay. It's the 40s. It's not okay. All right, go ahead. <laughs> One shower would remove only the surface graphite dust. Right. About a half an hour after the first shower, the dust in the pores of your skin would start oozing. 
Walking around the room where we cut the graphite was like walking on a dance floor. Graphite is a dry lubricant, you know. And the cement floor covered with graphite dust was slippery. And they would also go, you know what else we could do with this lubricant? Hey, we're all stuck down here under Stag Field, looking black. Always had a thing for black no. guys. Didn't President Roosevelt have a guy who was given sex with black train car attendants? Yeah, yeah. Um, um, oh, who was that? Wells. Wells, was that his name? I think so. I can't Sum- remember. Sumner Wells. Sumner Wells. No, mate, no. Sumner no, Wells is a rich no, dude. Anyway, he was the head of Viacom, wasn't he? Sumner so, Wells. So anyway, what you're telling me is that um, pseudo-African-Americans... <laughs> Develop this. That's what I'm doing. When they were cutting the graphite, they were singing, uh, you know, like slave no, songs. No. We be working on the railroad to live a long day. Just insert some laughs and chuckles on my end. <laughs> I'm just thinking Huckleberry Finn, you know, that's what's going on. Oh my God. Oh no, man. Imagine. You're one of the world's leading physicists. Mm-hmm. You're one of the smart... You've got a wallet with smart motherfucker <laughs> embroidered on it. Ouch. And you're yeah. spending your days underground carving graphite covered in black dust trying to build the world's biggest bomb. Oh, that. Now, Fermi. Yeah. Uh, is a bit of a hero here. He's described by his associates as completely self confident, mm. but wholly without conceit. Is that possible? He'd made his calculations and he was confident of what he was doing. He's been working on this project for a few years, he knows what's going on. And uh, he knows they're getting closer to reaching K. Now, by the 1st of, Decem- uh, 1st of December, in the early afternoon, they had decided that the pile was reaching critical size. Mm-hmm. Now, at that point, Fermi's massive pile, made out of layers, as I said before, wooden lattices that they built, right. contained 400 tonnes of graphite, 6 tonnes of uranium metal and 50 tonnes of uranium oxide. Now, to put that in perspective for you, Ray, Mm -hmm. the average African elephant weighs between two and a half and seven tonnes. So 400 tonnes of graphite is about 80 elephants (laughs) worth of graphite. Right. And that's what they have when they're finished carving it down to fit into their lattice and into a spherical shape. So imagine how much they started with, how many elephants of graphite right. they started with. Can we imagine what 80 elephants worth of graphite looks like? They went through that $6,000 they were given pretty quick, didn't they? $6,000? At the very, 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 very beginning when they were trying to buy graphite. Oh, right, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine spending your days carving 80 elephants into nice little cubes. I'm a scientist, bitch. I ain't doing this. Yeah. It's yeah. not what they signed up for. <laughs> now, about 8.30 a.m. on the morning of Wednesday, the 2nd of December, the scientists began to assemble 
at the squash court where the pile had been built. In the doubles squash court in the west stands of Stag Field, University of Chicago, Fermi and the other scientists are going to watch from the balcony of the squash court. The giant balloon is fitted around the pile. The air is pumped out. Now, they've taken precautions. What if it goes supercritical? Well, they've got an emergency rod made out of cadmium. Mm -hmm. Cadmium is very good for absorbing neutrons. Um, And it's suspended above the pile, attached to a rope, which could be cut with an axe if things started to go supercritical. Right. Not exactly what I think of when I think of advanced safety mechanisms to stop a nuclear explosion underneath Chicago. Oh, it's all right, uh, General. Les, can I call you Les, General Groves? No, you can't. You refer to me as General Groves. Yeah, I'll call you Les, I think. Les, listen. Lezo. Lezo is what I'm going to call you. Lezo. Mate. Mate, listen, it's okay. You don't need to worry. See that rope? Goes up to that pole. Got an axe. Anything goes wrong, we just chop the rope with the axe, pole. Les, what? Fucking Les, Les oh. you know, You're not a pole. Uh, we've got some poles working here. I get confused. Yeah. That's, yeah. Uh, it's all good. Don't worry about it. But, in fact, they weren't that confident that the whole ropey, axey, poley thing would work. So they had a backup. Right. A backup security plan if shit went wrong. What if the what if they don't if the axe can't cut the rope? What if the pole doesn't fall properly? Right. They had a, they had a suicide squad basically. Um, and I'm not talking about uh, the Joker and uh, uh, Margot <laughs> Robbie. Right. Yeah, yeah. Although you know. If I had to put together a, a suicide yeah. squad, it would definitely have Margot Robbie. I'd start with it. her. Yeah. Yeah, just Margot yeah. Robbie is all we need for this one, boys. Um, <clears throat> yeah, they had a suicide squad on standby. If things went pear-shaped, these three guys, their job was to rush in and cover the entire pile with a cadmium sulfate solution. Right. Imagine that's your job description. <laughs> Shit. So what do you do, Barry? Uh, well, um, you, you've heard of a nuclear bomb, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> me well, and my two if, mates if, here. Yeah, me, Barry, Stan, and uh, and and Larry. If uh, things start to go, if the nuclear bomb starts to go off, if people start, our screaming. job is yeah. Our job is basically to throw ourselves on top of it. And pour cadmium, pour this milky, milky white liquid over it. That's basically that's that's what I do. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What kind of training did you have to get for that job? I'm assuming the these the guys yeah. weren't highly trained physicists. Yeah. Um, Matt, do you think they got that job? Or they, they had to draw straws. All right, now the, we're going to be drawing straws for the Suicide <laughs> Squad. They were probably the last ones to step back. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, honestly, I guess if it goes super critical, everyone in that room is dead anyway. So whether you're the first or the third or the fifth person to get incinerated in the world's first ever nuclear explosion probably doesn't really matter. So the experiment starts at 10 a.m. The 2nd of December, 1942. 
We're a far way out from the end of the war here. It's my, my point. Yeah. Now, so the emergency rod is in the middle of the solution, in the middle of the, the pile right now, obviously stopping it from working because it's absorbing all of the neutrons. Mm-hmm. There's a guy called George, one of the physicists. George's job is to pull the rod out very right. slowly. And this they rod call is him 13 pull- feet long. Sorry. They call him Pull Out George. That was his name. His job was to pull it out and then wipe it on the curtains afterwards. Pull Out George. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he starts to pull it out very slowly. Now, meanwhile, Fermi is looking at a neutron counter. That's mm. telling him, you know, what, what, what the, how close to K they are, right? So it's very, very slow process here. You pull the rod out inch by inch. You pull it out. You stop. You look at the counter. Fermi does his calculations with a slide rule, <laughs> pen and paper, to make sure that it is where he thinks it should be. Right. So they do this. He pulls it out a little bit at 10 a.m. 37 minutes later, Fermi is finished doing his calculations. Everything's on track. They pull it out a little bit more. Yes, Stop. Mm-hmm. Wait. <laughs> Fermi does his calculations. They pull it out a little bit more. Let, let me throw and something that, in real let me, I'm sorry, let me throw something in. So the second time that they pulled it out at six inches, the neutron intensity leveled off at a rate outside the range of some of their instruments. So it's getting to the, po- it's getting to the point where even some of their instruments can't keep up. But it's okay, because Fermi's there with his fucking slide rule. Badass with a slide rule. <laughs> Smart motherfucker with a slide rule. That's Fermi. Yeah, exactly. So half an hour goes by. They pull it out another foot. Fermi does his calculations. Suddenly, there's a loud crash. Everyone shits their <laughs> pants. And there's about 30 people there right now watching, and they all shat themselves. That's a lot of shit. <laughs> it um, really is. I'm not cleaning that up. <laughs> yeah, fortunately, they're all covered in black from the uh, graphite dust, so they can't see it. Yeah, but they can smell it. Um, <laughs> now you can tell us what happened, Ray. Why? Why was there a loud okay. crash? So, so the crash was certainly not uh, anything that was planned. What happens is the um, if the neutron intensity exceeded the chamber setting, the solenoid would trip and the gravity would pull the rod back into position to stop the chain reaction, which is fine. That's what it's supposed to do. However, what they forgot to do that morning, because they were probably pretty worked up, they knew what they were going to try to do. Its setting had been set arbitrarily. It wasn't set on anything in particular. So it comes crashing down. It slams. It stops the experiment. But again, like you said, they, this I mean, they've been at this for, what, an hour and a half or two hours, whatever. They're all stressed out. They're all been waiting around, and suddenly there's this loud crash. I'm sure their nerves were on, and everybody seems to be freaking out at this point, except for one man. Yeah, that would be Enrico. Ricky. Yeah. Ricky Fermi. <laughs> Ricky Bobby Fermi. <laughs> They call him. Ricky Fern, um, yeah. He's cool. Shake and bake. He's the magic man. Now you see him. <laughs> now you don't. Uh, Fermi. 
Fermi, uh, that was Cal. <gasps> Cal Norton Jr., really, who was Magic Man. But uh, anyway, um, Fermi uh, says, let's go to lunch. <laughs> and everyone, everyone go home, get a change of pants. <laughs> let's go to lunch. I'm starving, said Fermi. So they spend a couple of hours at lunch talking about the anything but the experiment and how they all shit themselves. No one wants the to. Ball. No one wants to yeah. admit to that. The balls on this Italian. Yeah. At two p.m., they go back and try again. They repeat the process slowly. Pull it out a little bit. Do your calculations. It's like you and I are having sex in Vegas. Slowly pull it out a little bit. Check to see if that's all right. Pull it out a little bit more. Except there was the reverse in Vegas. Slowly stick it in. How does that feel? No? Okay. A little bit more. A little bit more. Just relax. Relax. Okay. Yeah. So the thing about after lunch, word had started to get around. So now there's about 42 people watching. And and you're right. They all get back into positions. What what is interesting is that... um, George Wheel pulls out all the rods but one. Pull out puts, George. Pull out George. Pulls all the rods out but one. And he takes that one and he puts it back to where they were before lunch. There's no reason to go through the entire process again. Uh, Fermi knows what he's doing. So they've set it up. But this time, the zip, the uh, the, the, the control, uh, in case something goes wrong, it has been secured. So this time it will not fall down no matter what because Fermi is going for it. So they go through the process, a little bit more, a little bit more, do the calculations. Finally, Ricky, Ricky Bobby says, this is it. Um, this is it, said Fermi. The reaction that will now be so sustaining. So sustaining. Yeah. He watches the needle. They watch him watching the needle. He watches them watching him watching the needle. Does his math. Calm as a cucumber on a cold day in the Antarctic, in a fridge. <laughs> then he broke into a huge smile, closed oh. his slide rule, and said, oh. <laughs> I'm the motherfucking bitch! Self- the reaction is self-sustaining, he said. Oh. The curve is exponential. Woo! The world's first nuclear chain reactor operated for 28 minutes and at 3.53pm, the control rods were replaced. The counter slowed, the pen headed downwards, the test was over. They had succeeded in creating a self-sustaining nuclear reaction and then, just as importantly, stopping it without killing everyone in Chicago. That's so critical. No pun intended. They had controlled the release of energy from the atomic nucleus. Good for them. They got a party now. And how did they party, Ray? Well, you get an illegal bottle of Chianti. You pour it around in some cups. You pass it around. And they sipped. Um, But Fermi was asked to sign the wrapping on the bottle. And then they all signed it. And everybody was super excited except for one person, and this will be my last part, then you can take over, Cam, and close the show. Leo Szilard dreamed that atomic energy might substitute exploration for war, carrying men far from the narrow earth into the cosmos. He knew now that long before it propelled on any such exodus, it would increase the war's devastation and mire man deeper into fear. 
Leo was not happy. Mm. Leo did not get what Leo wanted. Leo gets. He didn't get. Leo gets. Didn't get yeah. what Leo wanted. One of uh, so Fermi pulls out this bottle of Chianti um, and they drink it with some fava beans. Um, oh, Agent Starling, you think you can dissect me with this blunt little tool? No, I, I thought that your knowledge. You're so ambitious, aren't you? Do you know what you look like to me with your good bag and your cheap shoes? You look like a rube, a well scrubbed hustling rube with a little taste. Good nutrition's given you some length of bone, but you're not more than one generation from poor wire trash, are you, Agent Starling? And that accent you've tried so desperately to shed, pure West Virginia. What is your father to you? Is he a coal miner? Does he stink of the land? You know how quickly the boys found you, all those tedious, sticky fumblings in the backseats of cars, while you could only dream of getting out, getting anywhere, getting all the way to the end. see a lot, Doctor. But are you strong enough to point that high-powered perception at yourself? What about it? Why don't you, why don't you look at yourself and write down what you see? Or maybe you're afraid to. A census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. You fly back to school now, little Starling. Fly, fly, fly. Fly, fly, fly. Wait, right, now I'm going to have oh. nightmares. Thanks. I think I've, I've told you this story before, how I met Anthony Hopkins just after, just before that movie came out. I do. If you do, I don't remember. Yeah. I met him um, at an AA meeting and didn't know who he was. He got introduced as Tony. I, I didn't know who he was. Thought he looked vaguely familiar, but I couldn't right. really place him. I was, I was, I was like twenty, right? Um, and uh, we had a good chat. And he, get, you know, I said I was playing. I was planning on going to London uh, in the near future. And he gave me his home phone number. Call me. Call me up. You know, call me up when you get there, Cameron. Does not. Didn't talk like that at all. But it's very nice. <laughs> very, 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 very warm and friendly. Call me up, nice. and uh, you know, I'll look after you when you get to London. I'm like, oh, I didn't. Anyway, didn't get to London. Lost his number. Um, <clears throat> and uh, you know, a couple of months later, I saw Silence of the Lambs came out, and I was like, Oh my fucking oh my god! god. Kill he me. was going to eat my liver <laughs> with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. <laughs> Anyway, as you briefly mentioned, Chianti was illegal because the US was at war with Italy at the time and it was illegal to import Italian wine anyway, but Fermi had kept it hidden all the entire time. He probably had it with him for years. And uh, he pulled out some paper cups. They all drank in silence. No toast. Yeah. They were all aware of the significance of what they'd accomplished, but they weren't sure if they were the first to accomplish it because they didn't really know where the Nazis were up to. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fermi then, as I think you mentioned, got all of the guys to sign the straw wrapping around the bottle. I wonder where that ended up. I tried I to find was, out. Yeah, I couldn't find I out. Yeah. Compton then phoned Conant at Harvard and delivered a message in a prearranged code. Jim, said Compton. 
She can't go any further, Jim. <laughs> She's got to explode. That's not much of a code. I can't do it. That's not much of a code. He's got to explode. <laughs> we exploded all over the place. No, I, I don't know what that item was. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I lost it. I don't know, I but I, I like it. I like it. It's good. I, I lost it on the second word. It just ran away from me. Anyway. I got away. Uh, it took a life of its own. Jim, said Compton, the Italian navigator has landed in the new world. Mm. Is that so, said Conan? How were the natives? Everyone landed safe and happy, Compton replied. As the crew left the uh, bunker, the squash courts in the west stands of Stagfield, one of the guards out the front asked one of the scientists, what's going on, doctor? Something happened in there? (laughs) Oh, yes, my friend. No, he obviously (laughs) couldn't say anything, but uh, yes, something happened in there. It was the other part. Um, Everybody was so worked up. Everybody, no one remembered or even tried to take a photo. Of that day, so yeah, just in their memories, yeah, and, and drawings. And I've seen a of, lot of drawings on the internet, but it, there's, there's no photos. And a bunch of shitty pants that yeah. uh, <laughs> history. They, the that was the only mem- that was the only memento they had. <laughs> Fifty pairs of <laughs> shit-filled trousers. Shit myself during chain reaction. Anyway, <laughs> on this momentous day in scientific history. They had generated half a watt of energy. That would be increased 10 days later to a full 200 watts, enough to power about two light bulbs. I gotta tell you, I'm a little less impressed right now. And that's where we'll wrap up episode 73. Uh, one review. This is from Australia. A username I cannot read. S brackets, uh, <laughs> upside down letter V, close brackets, 0TT0Z. <laughs> you know what it means, whoever wrote it. I don't know what it means. It's code. It's code. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Anyway, this person, whoever he or she may be, writes, a brilliant podcast with the usual production value that I've come to expect from a Ray and Cam podcast. Comprehensively told, I think an important topic that still holds relevance in today's modern world. I was excited when the duo announced this show, largely because it's a topic I don't know well enough, and Ray and Cam's track record of keeping the topic interesting hour after hour guarantees I'll still be listening and learning well after I would have closed a book and walked away. If you're still listening after Yalta, you're fucking locked in, baby. Keep up the good <laughs> work we're still here we expect you to be here good work nice. snotos i'm gonna go with snotos um you oh, know who you are right as uh, send us an email with your address we'll send you a uh, thank you d-back mug and that's it kids that's the cold war manhattan project first three episodes down few more left to go as we tell mm-hmm. What happened in the next three years? Because we're only at the end of 1942 here yeah. at Stag Field. Got, uh, three, yeah. almost three full years left to go. What happened? You'll have to wait and find out. <laughs> Did they end up building atomic bomb? You will never know until you hear the next three episodes of the show. That's true. Um, 
Final notes, check out our Renaissance show if you haven't already. Uh, check out our Bullshit Filter show. We are currently doing the war on drugs. Um, the D-back, no, the uh, Renaissance show, we're talking about the collapse into the Dark Ages. That's been a lot of uh, fun. Yeah. Um, the Europe tour is going ahead. We've pressed yes. the button on it. We've um, we've got only ended up getting like six or seven people to, to buy tickets. So those six or seven people are going to give our full attention for the tour. Man uh, man if you absolutely. If you want to come... You can still probably get a ticket, but you better uh, email me as a matter of urgency and tell me that you want to come. It's going to be great. Three weeks in Europe. Don't miss out. We we may never do it again. Um, based on the uh, level of uh, interest we got this time, uh, people willing to commit, we may never do it again. Yeah, so this okay. may be it. Right. This may be our one, you know, and who knows how long we've got left to live, honestly. Yeah. Um, who knows? So the way Trump's going, you know, this could be it. So right. uh, anyway, let me know if you want to come and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be back uh, in a couple of weeks with more Cold War. buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. on its skin, it does this whenever it's told. Mr. My Family, you'll pay cash. Whatever ransom you're asking for, they'll pay it. It rubs the lotion on its skin or else it gets the hose again. What?